At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. said beep boop okay i also said beep boop so that means the magic is now in effect and everything will function as it should welcome to the cryptid keeper podcast the podcast for cryptids and their keepers that's us and if you're listening it's you too i'm alex flanagan and i'm addison peacock and it's been a hot second since i was able to catch you off guard with one of those so i'm glad that we were able to get back into the immersive experience right out of the gate (laughs) immediately out of the gate yeah it's it's rough now because I'm making somebody other than you edit the audio, and so I'm never sure exactly how cruel that is. But also, there's silence for you to sample and everything. So, like, if if that needed to happen, you could be you could be muted, and people wouldn't know that you were losing your mind over how funny I am. <laughs> All right. All right. Calm down. Speaking of, um, I would like to start... Speaking of how funny I am, um, I'd like to actually start off this start off this episode with a question and an anecdote. Mm. So my question for you is, uh, and I think this is like a shared experience that we've all had at some point, have you ever had a friend like take an improv bit and sort of run with it in a way that was so natural and immersive and good that it temporarily made you question reality? Yes. Because that happened to me on a very specific occasion. And that occasion was a couple years ago, I was at King's Dominion, um, which, if you're not from the area, is a, a fairly large amusement park, right? Or theme park, I guess. It's a bunch of things. It's They're roller coasters and stuff. It's like a Six Flags. Yeah. Um, like, Snoopy is a huge deal there. I don't know why, but... There's, like, a whole thing with Snoopy. That's true. Charlie Brown characters in general. Yeah, King's Dominion has, like, a thing with Peanuts, I guess. Quick aside, I actually got a job offer at one point to be one of the, like, Peanuts people who walks around in the foam oh, heads. Yeah. And I was like, no, thank you. And you were like, no, not good for my brand, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Mama always told me I had the face for amusement park work. Anyway. <laughs> so I was at King's Dominion. Um, it was actually on my birthday a couple years ago, and I was out there with some friends, and we were just, you know, hanging around. And somehow we came upon this thing that became like the running joke of the day. And that was that my friend Drake is actually secretly a vampire. Hmm. And I don't know how this came up. I mean, like I I understand it. it. It kind of came up through a series of like, off jokes, I think. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you know Drake or not, but Drake is the kind of person, like, really, really excellent guy. Um, but, like, tall, gangly, very, very pale-skinned, unbelievably talented, very clever, like, fun guy to hang out with, kind of with, but clearly a vampire, right? And this sort of, like, became the running joke of the day. And so as the day went on, we were, like, riffing with it and, like, trying to just pepper him with questions and catch him off guard. And, like, I don't know, it was just fun. But at one point, Drake said the funniest thing that has ever been said to me, and it's a joke that has stuck with me, like, ever since, which is, in one of the various, like, riffs that we were doing, I was trying to, like, get him to, quote-unquote, confess, like, how long he had actually been alive as a vampire, you know. Mm-hmm. And... So I was asking him, like, you know, how many lifetimes he'd lived and, like, if Drake was his real name. And he was like, well, you know, more or less. I mean, it changes throughout the years. Like, Drake, 
Dracula, and I <laughs> lost my freaking mind. It was like the funniest <laughs> thing like anybody has ever said off the cuff. Like it was it was just so reactive. And so anyway, I'm telling you all of this as an elaborate lead-in to a discovery I made when I got home from that King's Dominion trip, which was I understand that this thing happened, and of course Drake clearly is not a vampire. I do want to get that out of the way, but mm, I'm not sure. I couldn't but I couldn't help but think in the moment. I was like, okay, wait a second. I know he's not. I know that's ridiculous. But I also know that if I were in some sort of supernatural movie, this would be the exact moment I would hate the main character for if she didn't go look that up right away. Right? Because it's, like, kind of a give. Right? Like, like the, the creature would say something like, oh, ho, 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 and you'd be like, no, of course not. And then meanwhile, the audience were, like, shouting, like, he just told you. So I thought, I should look into this. <laughs> If only to set my own mind at ease, right? Like, we've all had these sort of weird thoughts. Please tell me that we've all had these weird thoughts. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so I went home, and I looked it up. And, I mean, clearly, again, Drake is not a vampire. That's not the point of any of this. The point I don't of believe this, you. The point of this is that I found out there is actually an extremely present community of real vampires. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's what our episode's about today. Real vampires? Real vampires. Oh, shoot. Psychic vampires or blood vampires? We'll talk about it. Okay. So we're getting into the Halloween season, and I did want to do one that was, like, kind of fun and spooky, so I was leaning towards a traditional creature. But this episode is actually, technically, to date, arguably the least, like, cryptid episode we've done. Because I know we've talked about a lot of things where we've been able to justify, like, technically they fit the definition of cryptid. Technically, these don't. Oh, because a cryptid is something that can't be proven or disproven, and real vampires exist. So here's the thing. Our show is over now because you've broken form. But I was hoping you guys would forgive me for a Halloween special. Here's the thing. I am very excited about this because I, I don't know probably as much as you do about this because I feel like you've done a lot of research, but I am very familiar with these communities. I am very familiar with the fact that this is a thing. Because as a youth and continuing into now, but also as a youth, I, what else can I say except for that I was a teenage girl in the height of hormones and my fascinations found their way toward vampires. So I used to just do a lot of internet deep dives. No, of course. And so I did this Mm -hmm. deep dive and then kind of forgot about it for a couple years. And so like when I was looking for topics to do for today... Um, I was thrilled to stumble back upon this again, and my understanding of it has shifted considerably since then. Like, this is a really fascinating topic, and I do just want to say straight out the gate, like, it's not my intention to present this episode in a way, like, that I think these people should be laughed at, okay? So I just want to go ahead and say, like, this is a real community of people. We may have listeners who are real vampires, and, like, that is a thing that I want to go into this with the understanding of. I'm not trying to say, like, (laughs) real vampires. I'm saying, like, this is something that is funny to me simply because I had no concept of it being what it is. And as I looked more and more into it, like, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff to be taken away Mm. from this. So I hope that we can keep it informative. And I hope that, you know, as usual, the jokes are solely on us and that any laughing that we do at this is just because we are ourselves Mm -hmm. kind of mind boggled. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of variation within, and I'm sure you'll get into it, um, within that world uh, that, like, I can't even, at a certain point, wrap my brain around. It's just, like, so much happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there is a lot of variation. And so, like, there is definitely a spectrum within this community of, like, 
where people fall in terms of self-identifying as vampires. There are people who feel that they've chosen this lifestyle, and there are people who feel that they haven't, and there are people who would probably object to it being called a lifestyle at all. For some people, they view it much more as a condition or just an aspect of their biology. And it's really interesting to sort of unpack what all of that means because it's a community that has a lot of members in it, Mm -hmm. but isn't really widely talked about. And it's hard to talk about it without people on the internet like me jumping out there and just being like, (laughs) really, buyers? Like, and that's not, that's not helpful to anybody. But I also, you know, I don't want to make the mistake of just like conflating like, you know, vampire discourse with, like, racism or anything that's, like, a serious institutional problem. I'm not trying to say, like, vampires are prejudiced. Like, it's not really the same thing, but it's interesting to look at the Mm -hmm. ways that, like, sort of our understanding of marginalized groups shapes our interactions Mm -hmm. with them. And And that's what I'm trying to get across. And, like, different subcultures on, again, I don't know if subculture is even the right thing to use, but it... But, like, I think the closest comparison I could draw is is to other kind of quote-unquote controversial subcultures. Yeah, and it's fascinating that you would bring that up because actually I do want to go ahead and point something out, which is that I know we have a lot of younger listeners and a lot of people who maybe listen to episodes as families, and I just want to go ahead and put a wording on this one and say that, well, it's not my intention to get specifically explicit with it, Um, There is going to be some discussion of the vampire community and the ways that it either in perception or in reality experiences an overlap with some, like, sexual subcultures. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not cool with listening to that, this would be a good time to tune out. I was going to say, I'm about to say right now that I know for a fact that there is a great deal of overlap between um, the kink community and the BDSM community and some real vampire stuff. For um, a lot of people, yeah, but not for all of them. Oh, no, not for all of them. I mostly you know, just The Venn mean... diagram definitely has, like, a big separate section, and that's a fascinating thing that I also learned out this morning. So The Venn diagram is not two circles, is what I'm saying. Okay. Correct. Also, really quick before we dive in, just want to make the very silly joke that's been kicking around in my head since you said the phrase real vampires, which is just, ah, real vampires. You remember ah, real monsters? Ah, real vampires. Yeah, yes, you. I do. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Glad we could have this moment. <laughs> Okay, so when I say real vampires, what is it that you think I'm talking about? I guess that's my first question. Just, like, let's get it out there. People who are not burnt by the sun necessarily, more than regular people are, because the sun is not good for us, um, that are not immortal as far as I know. Like, people who are, for all intents and purposes, mortals, Mm -hmm. um, who participate in the drinking of blood for various... No, I'm just thinking. Yeah, this isn't a trick question. I'm just curious to know, like, what you're what you're bringing to the table in terms of your understanding. I also know, and I don't know if you're going to get into this, but I also know about the concept of psychic vampires as well. Mm-hmm. We will get into so, it. So, yeah. I know that that is also a thing, which is to say, like, people who feed on energy. Sure, totally from others. Mm-hmm. But essentially, and I know, like, again, I know little bits, but I think that. Uh, the bits that I know are largely through the lens of having heard about it in, like, and again, like, I'm not going to get, be, like, explicit or weird, but in, like, BDSM circles. Totally. So I don't really know that I know enough about it to just, but I'm like, they're, they can't turn into bats. They're, as far as I know, I keep saying this, but then I want to qualify because I was like, someone's going to email me and be like, (laughs) I can turn into a bat. Meet me. (laughs) I will prove it. Email me at my, uh, my Geocities page. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm like afraid to make any blanket statements just, because okay, I might just, be wrong. Just first things first, I do have to say though, my one critique of the real vampire community, you guys have got to update your websites. Oh no. You guys really need to. I'm trying to get like primary sources here and everything's like red font on black backgrounds and it's it's an eyesore. Please get some graphic design. There's got to one of you has to be a graphic designer. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, anyway, so straight out the gate, I want to make a distinction. And I want to make that distinction between blood play and vampirism, right? Oh, yeah, different. So Very different. there are people who actively choose to, for their own fulfillment in whatever way, consume or interact with the blood of themselves or other people. Vampirism, as we are discussing it in this episode, is having to deal with people who, for some reason, have to do that. Yes. Okay. So first things first, I want to talk about clinical vampirism. So clinical vampirism is more commonly called Renfield syndrome or (gasps) Renfield syndrome. And I bet you know why. I don't. I just know what Renfield syndrome is. Oh, okay. So Renfield is a character in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Wait, which, who is it? Um, Renfield is, he's a human um, who is a patient in an asylum and basically is presented as, like, the human counterpart to these sort of depraved vampire activities. I think he, like, eats bugs. Okay. Anyway, it's super weird. Oh, yeah, he's, like, the the kind of, like, the thrall. Yeah, 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 he is. Um, I didn't remember his name. <clears throat> Got it. So this is called Renfield Syndrome. And before anybody, like, gets on Twitter to at me, there is an interesting history with, like, the discussion of Renfield Syndrome as a real or not thing. The person who named it um, was... Okay, yeah, Richard Knoll. Um, Richard Knoll is a clinical psychologist who coined the term Renfield syndrome for a book he wrote in 1992. And when he came up with this conversation of, like, Renfield syndrome, he actually was kind of parodying the ways in which people in the 90s wave of, like, psychology and pseudo-psychology were coming up with syndromes for everything. So it's important to note that Richard Knoll, the person who came up with this term, Renfield syndrome, was not ever intending for it to be a serious diagnosis. He was more or less critiquing the ways that people would look at, like, a bunch of symptoms and loop Mm -hmm. them together as a diagnosis without looking at the person behind them. But the name Renfield Syndrome actually got adopted into, like, a bunch of other papers and, like, treatises since then, and people started taking it seriously, and they took it out of context, and before you know it, this was ending up as, like, a formal diagnosis for people and papers and consideration in academic circles. So kind of without his meaning it to, it became a legitimate thing. And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that, like, the condition itself became legitimate only after he accidentally brought it into existence. I'm saying that this name for it and this categorization of this particular set of symptoms wasn't ever really intended to be the kind of diagnosis that it became. But it is called Renfield Syndrome as of 1992 and as of, Mm -hmm. like, Richard Knoll and his contributions to the thought process. So, clinical vampirism, aside from that name, though, is still a thing. Um, The earliest formal presentation of clinical vampirism in psychiatric literature with, like, actual analysis and interpretation and case studies was presented in 1964. So there is a history of it in medical texts. Okay. And basically, it's, again, it's people who have a compulsion to or experience symptoms when they don't consume human blood. 
Now, the sort of psychiatric diagnosis of blood drinking as associated with sexual pleasure has actually been around even longer as a diagnosis, and that started showing up in psychiatric literature in the 1890s. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty wild. There is, like, a fascinating medical history behind all of this. And if we were a show that was focusing on strictly medical stuff, like, we could still do an entire episode on this. Oh, yeah. But what I want to point out first and foremost about clinical vampirism is that there is a lot of argument on whether or not it is a biological or psychological condition, right? hmm There are some interesting medical cases of people who are real vampires who, when they go for a prolonged time without feeding, do experience certain life-threatening symptoms. And those symptoms do go away once they engage in vampiric behavior again. Oh, wow. It's uncertain whether that's the placebo effect, whether that's a really strong, you know, sort of psychological association, or whether Mm -hmm. it is biological in nature. There's really not a lot that's known about it, and it's hard to study anything that has that level of social stigma around it, right? I would be curious about studying the iron levels in people with clinical vampirism because Mm -hmm. i know that craving like for example like rare meat and like blood and things Mm -hmm. like that can be a symptom of like anemia and iron deficiencies yeah it can and actually here's a wild thing like a tidbit for you Uh if you yourself are looking to engage in the time-honored tradition of vampirism and that's actually one of the biggest risks to you is consuming blood like has iron amounts that will kill you yeah You can die from drinking blood because your body can't filter the iron out of it in that concentration and in that way. Mm -hmm. It'd be careful. Yeah, it's really wild. Yeah, that's what I mean, though. If someone had, that would explain, if someone had a really pretty severe iron deficiency, that would explain to me, one, how they were able to drink it and not get sick. And two, how it might make them feel better. Yeah, totally. So according to the case history of, so it's the case history of things that, Richard Knoll based his quote-unquote diagnosis and, like, condition on. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were cases that, like, Dr. Knoll pulled from as examples to say, like, this is a textbook example of Renfield syndrome, um, had a couple of common factors to them. Basically, in the condition of clinical vampirism, later known as Renfield syndrome, there was an event in childhood that causes the experience of a particularly bloody injury or, like, accidental ingestion of blood to sort of become a formative and exciting experience, basically Mm -hmm. to be encoded in the brain as like a, wow, moment. Um, After puberty, then, that excitement and fixation continues with an added component of sexual arousal. Mm -hmm. And then throughout adolescence and adulthood, that sort of uh, compulsion and fixation and, like, association becomes affiliated with, like, control and... um, Again, in, in some cases, like sexuality, but I, I don't want to like get into a totally Freudian analysis of this. That's not I was just interesting about to, say, to that's me like or correct. Into Freud. <laughs> yeah, but having to do with like control and power and vitality, um, basically all of those associations become it is it's life, you know, like into place. Yeah, exactly. And in the case history, Noel speculated, and it has sort of been confirmed in other cases that the process pretty much always began with auto vampirism. Okay. Which would be people, you know, drinking their own blood basically because they're experiencing these cravings and don't really know Mm -hmm. what to do with it. And there's a lot of shame and stigma surrounded with that. So they try, like, you know, licking their own wounds or something. And then that becoming Mm -hmm. uh, a fixation that develops into the need or the desire to, like, engage with other creatures in that way. Yeah. So that is Renfield syndrome. That's clinical vampirism, basically. I might be about to, like, 
accidentally like reveal something about myself, but I feel like a lot of people, especially when they're younger, out of curiosity alone, engage in like a little bit of autovampirism. Like, oh, totally. Yeah, okay, no, I think that's very normal. I think what this is saying is like this is looking at that as sort of the inciting event in people that continue to have this condition later is when that coincides with some sort of circumstance that makes that a particularly standout event. Okay. No, totally. I just was remembering being a kid and I would get, um, particularly because I have OCD and something I would do a lot mm-hmm. is pick at like my cuticle skin on my fingers. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then when it would, anyway, oop, this is getting, yeah, I'm going to put some, we'll put, I'll put some big content warnings on this <laughs> we'll episode. put some warnings on this episode. Yeah. I will. Um, put some warnings on this episode for blood, for discussion of sexual content, et cetera. But uh, when I would when it would bleed, I would just be like, hmm, I wonder what that's like. Yeah, sure. I mean, you're a kid. Like, you're eating a bunch of gross stuff anyway. You're like, oh, my hands are muddy, blah. <laughs> like, yeah, like, why not? <laughs> I I think I've even told this story on this podcast before. But when I was uh, when I was 11, I ate an entire paper plate to see if I could. Fair, honestly. Actually, that's a lie. It wasn't to see if I could. It was out of spite. <laughs> That's even better, honestly. It was because I have been a vegetarian since I was about eight years old. And when I was in sixth grade, we had like a class pizza party and they uh-huh. got like three pepperoni pizzas and like one cheese pizza and all these and like all the cheese pizza was like gone before I could get any. So I got really mad and I ate a paper plate. Fair. Because I was like, screw you guys. But yeah. More on topic. I think everybody anyway. has at some point like um, there's sort of an immediate conditioned response to like put an injury in your mouth right like Mm -hmm. i don't think that's just a me thing but like if you cut your finger or something or burn it like your immediate response you're like oh my gosh mm," and like stick it in your mouth right totally i was gonna say which is ridiculous because our mouths are full of bacteria but anyway yes they are (laughs) but you know whatever um but it's just an immediate reaction and so i can see why that would be like a very natural seeming thing or like a natural progression of events Mm -hmm. so the crux of what i want to get into with this episode and sort of the crux of what was drawing my fascination with all of this is uh, a series of, it's actually one long study, but there is this guy named John Edgar Browning, who is, I think, now a postdoctoral fellow at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, He Mm -hmm. was previously working between a few different universities, but he did this entire graduate study for five years on real-life vampires as, like, an anthropological case study. And he himself is not a member of the real vampire community, but he spent five years like meeting these people and being really surprised by a lot of the stuff that he learned. And so it was a really fascinating thing. This first thing I'm going to look at is a piece written by him about his case study. You can actually find the full academic text of the case study online though. And it's super cool. And there are a few other articles that cite this guy's experiences because to date, it's kind of like the only full-scale long-term investigation we have of the culture of this whole thing as opposed Mm -hmm. to just like you know writing some people down in a psychiatry textbook like this is really cool because it's kind of a very people first analysis of what exactly this whole situation is and like how it looks to somebody from the outside who is actually very earnestly trying to learn about it that's so cool i'm excited yeah so Let me just go ahead and read the first few paragraphs from this article, which is What I Learned Studying Real Vampires. And this is by John Edgar Browning himself. This article was posted um, actually May 17th, 2018. The study was very recent. Oh, so this is, yeah, I was going to ask you when this was. He published his study in March 2015. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So it was a five-year study, so I guess it started in probably 2010. That's, yeah, this is incredibly recent. That's so cool. Very, very recent. Yeah, so here we go. 
With Christopher Rice's tantalizing tweet about the new Vampire Lestat television treatment and news of Stoker and J.D. Barker's Dracula prequel, Dracul, due out from Putnam in October, the topic of vampires again looms nigh for lovers of fiction and the supernatural. What happens, though, when the borders between fact and fiction fade into gray uncertainty? For real vampires, or human vampires as they are otherwise called, this is the reality they live with every day. What follows is not the full scope of their story. It's not even a little. But it's enough, I hope, to offer insight and invite curiosity, and perhaps, from some of us, even to spur self-reflection. Vampire fiction aside, there are in this world people who actually do drink blood, from humans and animals alike, or drain from others what they call psychic energy. It's a ritual performed not out of pleasure, but need, and it's normally done with the utmost care for their donor's safety and comfort. This need, according to them, arises from the lack of natural energies their own bodies produce. Fittingly enough, they've adopted the word vampire to self-describe their unusual predilection, one which they claim usually begins to surface just after puberty. I know this because I've interviewed a number of real vampires face-to-face -face during the course of my research as a graduate student, much like Christian Slater's character in Interview with a Vampire. Which is a great movie. It's not all as glamorous as it sounds, though, nor as easy. Real vampires aren't particularly looking to be found, and if the comment section of articles on the topic is any measure, can we really blame them? So here's the first thing that I, Alex, want to point out. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is an interesting distinction to make, and he goes on to make it a lot in his studies and the various articles posted about his studies, that the hardest part of doing this research was finding people who were willing to talk to him about it. Which... Which, yeah, I mean, one, I totally understand, but two, it raises a really interesting point, which is I think that a lot of people, myself included when I first stumbled upon the quote-unquote real vampire community, is that a lot of people are just doing it, like, for attention or to be, you know, edgy and different. And I'm not going to say that isn't true of anyone, because, like, with anything, and this is also really important to note, with any sort of marginalized subculture, there will be people who will use the uncertainty and the sort of, like, loner status of people just getting into that community to isolate and manipulate and control them. And so, like, obviously, there are going to be instances in any type of situation like this where there are people presenting a narrative of, like, what this sort of life and situation um, and lifestyle has to look like for the intention of grooming or isolating individuals, usually younger individuals and more uncertain individuals who are looking for information about that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I actually, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just, I remember reading something a couple years ago where there were um, two young women who were um, sort of new in the, in the real vampire community who were sort of manipulated by, and like left their state to like move in with this older man. Anyway, it was a mm -hmm. upsetting story. They're okay now. I think if I'm, if I'm right about the story, but it was it, it's true, especially, I think, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in in groups that are harder to get information about and where people can feel really vulnerable and scared to uh, of like exploring it. It's really easy for someone predatory to sort of swoop in and take advantage yeah. of that. And those people are the real monsters. Yes. Um, but especially and this article and others go on to make it in the vampire craze of like the usually young female world of yep. like Twilight and Anne Rice books and whatever, like there were a lot of people who for whatever reason in their own lives were looking to be a part of something like unique or different. And some of those people may actually have been honest to goodness real vampires who like 
were desperate for information after that point. Some of them may have been people who just like really needed an escape outlet, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there were a lot of, I think, communities that were sort of taking advantage of that and of the existence of the real vampire community to sort of paint a false narrative that was somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to make it very clear from the get-go that what we're talking about today is not that. We're talking about, like, the actual real vampire community, which, incidentally, has done a ton of good in the world. Like, I'll try to get into it later, but New Orleans has a really, like, strong and connected real vampire community, and they're a major force for humanitarian good. Every year since Hurricane Katrina, they go out of their way to do major acts of community service and feed the homeless, and it's really interesting. My, like, little, like, southern gothic loving heart just grew three sizes at the idea of a band of helpful vampires in New Orleans. I don't know, like... I knew it would. Isn't it incredible? New Orleans has a a thriving vampire community, and so does Atlanta, apparently. Those are two of the places that kept coming up over and over again in my research. Um, I was born there! Yeah, we will talk specifically about the New Orleans vampires, because um, it's the culture that I find really fascinating, and it's a lot of um, John Browning's research was in that area specifically. So we'll talk about it, but (laughs) what were you going to say? Oh, I just, I'm just, I'm just... I, I'm just thrilled by it. I'm thrilled by the image painted. <laughs> I know that like and I know I know that like these are these are all like for all intents and purposes just regular people, so they probably don't like dress in the aesthetic way that my brain is painting it, but I just some am imagining do. like some some, some very do. do. I'm I'm just yeah, I'm just imagining like a like a band of like friendly goths in the streets of New Orleans mm-hmm. helping people in need and it's really important to me. I'm really happy about it. Anyway. Yeah, that visual isn't far off. Thank goodness. I love it. I love the, that. I love that very much. The other much. thing I want to bring up while we're talking about this and sort of having this serious sidebar is something that he brought up in the like very first intro to this article, which is that for the people that we are interested in talking about today, it's a totally consensual process. Oh, yeah. Like, these aren't people who are going out and, like, manipulating people into being consumed from. Like, these aren't people who are finding, like, random people in the street or at bars and saying, like, let me drink your blood. Like, it's a very respectful and consensual (laughs) interaction. Also, like, I would imagine that if if you're someone who takes this very seriously and this is for you, whether psychological or physical in need, you would want to be very... I feel like you would you would be very precious about who you engage in that with because it is an incredibly intimate thing to do. It can be dangerous mm-hmm. if you don't know somebody's medical history. Oh it, yeah, absolutely. Like and and just in general, I think I think I don't want to sound like I'm like fetishizing it either, but I just I do think there is something weirdly or not weirdly, just something quite uh kind of unexpectedly, maybe. Unexpectedly beautiful about that kind of symbiotic relationship between people yeah there's definitely a kind of like trust and intimacy there that is yeah if nothing else fascinating yes exactly i just i just i i think that my brain is my brain wants to paint it as a metaphor even though it's it's not it's an <laughs> yeah, actual right. thing but it, it feels it's an like actual thing but i am sure that there are people i'm sure there are poets in the real vampire community who have probably written on it extensively mm-hmm. and if you are one of them send us your work Yes, please. Honestly, well, particularly because, like, I think, and I mentioned this already, as long as human beings have sort of understood what blood was and what it meant, it it is representative of, like, the essence of life. Mm -hmm. And the exchange of that between people is very interesting to me. Let's, um, 
jump back in. There's an excerpt from Browning's Field Journal, um, mm-hmm. which is his first vampire experience, which I would like to read to you now. Oh, that's exciting. I really like his voice, by the way. I like the way that he approaches this. Yeah. So basically, he just says it started for him about nine years before the publishing of this article, shortly before he transferred from a doctoral program in English in southern Louisiana to one in American studies in western New York. It was at the height of what some of us vampire scholars were calling at the time the vampire renaissance. Ooh. So I want to say that I did some more reading on his background. And... Basically, he states in other places that he had for years before this already been studying vampirism sort of in the abstract Mm -hmm. and decided with this study to finally just like, okay, you know what? I've looked at literally everything else about this. Like, I just need to go talk to these people. Yeah. Which is what this was. So this excerpt, um, he says... On October 26, 2009, I inscribed in my field journal a passage that resonates with me still today, both for its foretaste as well as, or perhaps especially because of, its naivete. So here it is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Baton Rouge. When attended Wicked New Orleans, which is, I think, a, a goth clothing shop, mm-hmm. um, on the 17th of October, things went extraordinarily well. Shop owner was happy to oblige me in every respect and went out of his way to volunteer information. In the initial five minutes of my speaking with him, he gestured towards the other end of the store to a lady in her 40s to 50s inspecting some clothing. I think she's a vampire, he said, and I believe that's her son with her. At this point, I was mildly embarrassed, as I knew he expected me to go and confront her right then and there. I had not prepared for my first time to happen this way. Nevertheless, I walked over to the woman and intruded with a polite but simple, pardon me. With a look of complete surprise, irritation, and curiosity, she turned to me, looked me in the eyes, and said nothing. So I continued by introducing myself and my reason for being in the store. Then finally I said to her, which I must admit was incredibly awkward, Do you know any vampires? I grinned embarrassingly, to which she returned a grin to reveal that two of her most prominent teeth had been filed down to a pair of incisors. Yes, ma'am. Her response? Yes, I might know a few. I quickly began asking her a few questions to make friendly conversation, but about what, to this day, I haven't the faintest recollection. I then proceeded to give her my contact info and politely asked if I might continue to speak with her at another time. While I did not ask for her own contact info, as I felt this would be too intrusive, I did ask for her name. To my complete surprise, she stated, simply, Jennifer. (sighs) I never saw or heard from Jennifer again. He then goes on to say, Jennifer was my first vampire, and at the time, I was sure she would be my last. How very mistaken I was. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's really cool, isn't it? Okay, that is an exceptionally cinematic moment. Isn't it great? I And this is the kind of thing that, like, was making me think about <laughs> that, like, again, the, the joking anecdote I told in the beginning of this episode is just, like, having this moment of... I know that, like, I am currently bound by the laws of the reality that I have been conditioned to expect, but at the mm-hmm. same time, there's something, like, so weirdly cinematic and, like, almost scripted about this moment that, like, it makes yes. my brain have to reconsider what I'm, like, looking at right here. I can see that so clearly in my head, that exchange of, um, do you know any vampires? Smiles to reveal pointed incisors. Fangs, yeah. I might know a few. It's so good. <laughs> Jennifer. It's so good. Jennifer. I love her. Oh, goodness. I wish I could just, like, do an audiobook of this entire case study because it's so fascinating and I love his voice so much. Reach out but to him. See if he'll let you. It, maybe I will. But instead, I'm going to go on ahead to another excerpt from his journal. And I'm going to skip okay. down about halfway through. So, again, I apologize. But 
This is talking about another encounter that he had. And you'll love this one too. This fateful encounter took place at Ye Old Original Dungeon, or simply The Dungeon, a nightclub located on Toulouse Street in the French Quarter. I know about this place. As I sat at... Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah, I've heard of this place. Okay, sorry. <laughs> As I sat at the bar, drinking a whiskey sour and jotting down field notes, the bartender there, with whom I had already talked about the study I was conducting, shouted into my ear over a corn song blaring overhead that I should go talk to those people as she passed a sideward glance at some folks who had just walked in. I stood and thanked her, hurriedly finished off my drink for courage, then proceeded with my leather satchel over to two young gentlemen dressed all in black and standing against a wall. The first of these gentlemen, sporting a long, dark ponytail, looked to be in his mid-thirties, and the second, crowned with short, spiky, dirty blonde hair, looked to be in his early twenties. After introducing myself to the latter and explaining, loudly, that I was attempting to assess the number of and most prominent features and practices by which people living in New Orleans self-identify as a vampire, I asked simply, do you know any? To this, he mocking grinned and replied, are you kidding? And to my surprise and relief, a pair of fangs extended prominently from behind the young man's handsome smile. Oof. By early December, I would meet almost another two dozen vampires in New Orleans, and each of them, beginning with Jennifer, taught me a valuable lesson about hiding in plain sight. Oh, how neat. Isn't it really fascinating? I love that. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and, and make a point right now because I unfortunately don't know if I'll have time to get to it in the course of the episode, but something that he reveals later on in this article and that I, is like a really beautiful moment of writing, and I'll try to find it, is that the the individual who did this study um, is a gay man. And he goes yeah. on to make a lot of fascinating points about, like, what it means to be, like, living this life where you really just sort of want to keep existing and people have all of these preconceptions about you and, like, mm-hmm. are looking for certain things when they look at you and to not really meet up to any of those, like, expectations and what it means to then have to try to navigate that conversational divide when people find this thing out about you. And it's really, mm-hmm. really fascinating. I'm really glad to hear that because I know we've even mentioned that discussing sort of like subcultures and things like this invites comparisons to marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. And I think there is the only way to really explore that in a way that is not going to be hurtful is for someone who is a member of one of those communities to explore and think through that. And I think that's really interesting. I want to read this. I love this guy. It's really good. Yeah. And then he goes on to talk about how, and I'll just read this quote, human vampires don't simply live among us, I would find. They are us in almost every detail. They're our teachers, our shop clerks, our bartenders, our antique dealers, our IT people, our friends, and for some even our family and loved ones. Some of us work with vampires every day or pass them on the street without ever knowing it. But to understand real vampires, how they think and how they act, we must understand our own reactions to them. It's really fascinating. Yeah. He goes on to talk about a lot of the people that, you know, he meets and how he was sort of going into this study expecting to find, like, people dressed in long black trench coats and, like, flowing cloaks and capes and, mm-hmm. like, a Lestat wannabes and a vampire fiction bookworms. But what he found basically was people who are pretty actively trying to avoid a lot of those stereotypes. Yeah, and I played into that. I made a joke about goths, and I'm sorry. <laughs> You did. And, but the thing is, like, a lot of them do engage in that. And I, I will get away from the Browning study and into some mm-hmm. other stuff here shortly. I just find this to be such a deeply thoughtful and wonderful, like, approach to all of it that I really wanted to start with this and make sure that's where we were grounding everything. No, I love it. I'm really glad. Thank you. Yeah, of course. He talks a lot about, you know, the various people that he met and all of the things that he went through and even talks in one part of the study in interesting detail about 
like one instance when he was at one of these like vampire community social gatherings and basically had a feeding experience with another vampire. Like one of them needed to feed or something. And he was like, well, here, you use me. Like, I, I'm curious about this. And it's, it's really mm. fascinating. That's amazing. That's a really great secondary source. But I did want to make sure we got some primary sources in this as well. So... Awesome. First and foremost, when I googled um, real vampires, one of the first things that came up was a link for meetup.com. And on meetup.com, you can find all sorts of real vampire meetups. Oh, shoot. Which led me to find where some of the biggest communities of these are. And this is public information, so I'm not trying to dox anybody. But if you're looking for real vampire meetups, you can Google them. And chances are there's one in your city or close to it. Um, The first one on here is the Atlanta Vampire Meetup Group with 764 vampires, organized by Merticus. The Chicago Vampire Meetup Group, organized by Derek, has 700 members. Aw, Derek. There's also a Detroit area vampire community, a Tucson area vampire and other kin community, desert vampires, Jacksonville vampires, Portland vampires. They're all over the place. That's amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. I... I'm just delighted by it. I love it when it's just like a really pedestrian name, just like Derek. Derek. Yeah. So I was looking at that, and the first name I read off, if you remember, is um, Merticus, I believe is how it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. How do you spell it? M-E-R-T-I-C-U-S. Yeah. Merticus, I guess? Yeah. Who is sort of the um, the leader or elder or chairperson or whatever terminology. I'm not sure what they use in their group. President. Or the... <laughs> the president for the Atlanta vampire community. And um, as I was sort of looking through that and looking at other articles, I accidentally stumbled upon an article that uses him as a primary source. Nice. Which is an article in The Guardian called Interview with a Real Life Vampire. Mm -hmm. Why why drinking blood isn't like in Hollywood. Uh, This is by Kim Wall from August 2015. Oh, rad. Yeah, and the subheading says, people who claim to be vampires are in the thousands, with demographics transcending class, race, and gender. But there's a reason they stay in the shadows. So it goes on to explain a few just, like, basic misunderstandings about vampirism. Like, it says, first of all, there's no biting. That's neither safe nor sanitary. And with too many vital arteries, the neck isn't the favored spot. Transactions aren't carnages, leaving the victim lifeless behind in a dark alley, nor do vampires sleep in coffins or burn in daylight. They're generally cool with garlic. Most of them don't even have fangs. Instead, modern vampires get their sustenance from inch-long incisions made by a sterilized scalpel on a fleshy part of the body that doesn't scar. Though the vampire may suck it up directly from the source, medically trained personnel usually perform the procedure. There's paperwork, too. Donors don't just have to consent, but also provide health certificates proving the absence of bloodborne diseases. Yeah. Still, feeding is a sensual and sacred ritual. So, we're people you pass on the street and likely socialize with on a daily basis, says Merticus, the 37-year-old founding member of Atlanta's Vampire Alliance. We often keep this aspect of our life secret for fear we'll be misunderstood and to safeguard against reprisals from what society deems taboo. Merticus has identified as a real vampire since 1997 and speaks eloquently and passionately about what vampirism is and what it is not. Not a cult, a religion, a dangerous practice, a paraphilia, an offshoot of the BDSM community, a community of disillusioned teenagers, and definitely not what's depicted in fictional books, movies, or television. (laughs) He is an antique dealer by profession, married with two dogs, and he's one of exceptionally few vampires to be open about his identity. 
For almost a decade, he has personally worked with academics, social scientists, psychologists, lawyers, law enforcement agencies, and others on how to best approach, research, and understand the vampire subculture. Cool, right? That's so cool. Mm-hmm. He says that only some 35% of real vampires are into goth. I apologize. Mm -hmm. And that some even sneer at what they call the lifestylers, also known as fashion vampires and posers. That's like mall goths. (laughs) Yeah, right? Uh, Like, no mall vampires here. Real (laughs) vampires only. I'm sorry, that is really... One of my favorite things in the world, this is like the weird little voyeuristic part of my brain, Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things in the world is the, like, drama and infighting amongst, like, really niche communities. Yeah, right. So this is very, that I just, that delights me so much. Mm-hmm. Insiders refer to the realization of one's vampiric nature as an awakening. It isn't like the dramatic process often portrayed in movies, and one isn't turned through vampire bites. For most vampires, it's a gradual and frightening process, normally manifesting itself in puberty or possibly following trauma. Through trial and error, vampires learn what curbs their hunger. No one knows what causes hematomania, the craving to drink blood. Mm -hmm. Those who experience it describe it as an intense thirst-like sensation, an addiction with withdrawal-like symptoms. Animal blood or rare steaks may act as substitutes, but for most vampires, nothing beats fresh blood. Frequency and amount vary, but for many, a few teaspoons once a week is enough. Mm -hmm. This naturally is supplemented with a normal diet. After all, real vampires are humans with human needs, Mm -hmm. says Merdicus. Most people are able to maintain healthy energy levels through diet, exercise, social interactions, and the occasional cappuccino. We've had to develop alternative means to sate our energy needs. Now, not all vampires drink blood. As you pointed out earlier, Addison, there are generally acknowledged to be two types of vampires, which is the blood vampires, or sanguinarians, Mm -hmm. and the psychic or energy vampires who drain life force rather than blood from others. I know about these. Yeah. (laughs) Real vampires, says Merdicus, have existed as an organized community for nearly 30 years and in solitary for far longer. There's no test for vampirism. Everyone is welcome, and it's a remarkably diverse crowd, ranging from doctors, lawyers, soldiers, scientists, artists, teachers, and parents of all age, gender, ethnicity, and religion. Some choose to align with like-minded through courts and houses, though the majority, he says, do not. Huh. Yeah. So I looked more into this... Sorry, I know, like, sometimes I get into these episodes and I'm like, and then I did this thing, and then I looked, no, over I like here, it. And then I looked at this, but I love it. Um, so I was looking around for, like, primary sources from one of these vampire groups, mm-hmm. and there's one that I found, um, which, and it must be open because I found it through just a search result, but I stumbled into a Google group. Okay. Which I've now been lingering in all day. <laughs> You're a lurker. I am a lurker. I'm a lurker in the real vampire community. This is um, the Vampirian Temple of UVUP. Mm-hmm. I don't remember offhand where they are, but That's let me okay. see. okay. You don't have to out them. I, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to, but, like, it. this is public information. Okay, so sure. if it's something that they want to be known, then that's what it is. So this is their group. They were founded December 18th, 2003. And all of their, like, resources and, like, meeting notes and things are up here on Google Groups. So if you ever want to look for that oh, wow. and find out more about it, you can. Yeah. Uh, they're a Vampirian temple of real spiritual vampires or vampires for divinity, unity, support, and strength. Oh, when you say spiritual vampires, does that just mean that they are vampires with that practice a great deal of spirituality or is that a reference yes. to like, psychic vampires? Yes, yes. Okay. Actually, that is what I'm talking about. Okay. This, like, this is a temple, um, which is my understanding that it's like 
I don't want to make the easy association, which is to say it's like a coffin because it's not quite. Um, there are some distinctions to be made. However, these the the leader of this temple um, makes a point on here. This is sort of the, the the mission statement, I guess, of this temple by the founding member and um, identified as the the founder and reverend, which is J.P. Venier. Mm-hmm. The whole purpose is to unite and educate the hashtag vampire community on its abilities, capabilities, beginnings, as well as focus on the spirituality of vampirism. The vampirian belief is eclectic, but different than most, since we don't worship anything above us and believe most religions are based in truth, not complete mm-hmm. lies, just what people understand. However, it takes away your personal power, which you can develop on your own, especially if you are vampire kin. Humans can develop their own divinity through mind exercises that other kin already possess naturally. My spirituality is based in my vampirism, pagan, and universalism, and I am a very spiritual soul. We are a vampirian temple with our own personal beliefs and ideals, but each individual is encouraged to find their own way and awaken to their own individual path. We are also involved in the hashtag goth culture, as are many of our founding members. Hashtag goth culture, yes. Hashtag goth culture. And this one is interesting. There's a ton of information up on here. Um, there's like a welcome post and this is what I was talking about. I'm not going to read this one because as you see, it's a white background with black highlighted red text and it's kind of a nightmare. I was going to say, if you take the word vampire out of that description, it sounds a lot like the Unitarian church I used to go to with Mm -hmm. my mom. Yeah, right. Um, I do have to read one more thing though. Yeah, give me. And I'm not going to make jokes about this. I'm just going to read it as it stands. This is a personal statement from the J.P. Veneer, the, the reverend of this okay. vampire temple. I, J.P. Veneer, am the geeky, ADHD, vampire, rivenhead, traditional, hippie, goth, vegetarian, vampirian, graver, pansexual, experimental sound artist. Wow. <laughs> Wait, I love that. Mm-hmm. That's so fun. Right. <laughs> also, like, I'm just delighted. Wait, also, did love music, clubbing, and dancing. Did that say vegetarian or did it cut out weird? No, I did say vegetarian. But how? I guess that, like, I don't know what to tell you. Do they, I guess, do they not technically? I guess that either like, is this. I guess that's a consensual they don't process. Count it, yeah, sort of like, um. It doesn't count. I mean, it's sort of like the weird, like, it's sort of like saying, like, is breast milk vegan? I get it. Like, it's the same kind of thing. Like, right. Yeah, it's that kind of thing, I think. This is not relevant. You were talking about, like, they were talking about, like, religions and stuff, and all I could think. All I could think, because my my upbringing was Episcopalian, Mm -hmm. and then as I mentioned, the Unitarian Church, but all I could think, and this is not me saying that that is what this is, but all I could think is, I'm like, folks, it's right there in the Bible, drink this, it is my blood. (laughs) Yeah, right? The, like... The idea of like blood drinking as this like sacred act is what I mean. That is not yeah totally foreign even to like one of the most mainstream faiths in the world. So the other thing I'd like to uh, take a moment to get into because this is my favorite part and I've sort of saved it for last. Yeah, is as I made reference to earlier, the New Orleans Vampire Association. Yes, please. So you can actually find all of this by going to neworleansvampireassociation.org. They have a website. It's great. It hasn't been updated in a while. Sorry. But the New Orleans Vampire Association is a nonprofit organization comprised of self-identifying vampires representing an alliance between houses within the community and the greater New Orleans area. Founded in 2005, NOVA was established to provide support and structure for the vampire and other kin subcultures and to provide educational and charitable outreach to those in need. <laughs> and they have their whole website up here. Um, there are different subpages for, like, the various houses, which I think are, like, subgroups within which different vampires 
find like common beliefs or like however mm-hmm. they want to sort of sort themselves into these these disparate communities. Uh, just some examples are the House of Mystic Echoes, Ooh. the Esoteric Gateway Order, House of the Muses, uh-huh. House Ethereum, House Razor, or House of the Dreaming. Beautiful. Not all of these pages are fully like built. Yeah. Um, but here's a short here's a short excerpt from the House of Mystic Echoes. Yes, please. Their sort of mission statement is um, headed by Belfazar Ashantison. H O M E promotes the motto: Live life to its fullest. Teach those around us. Work towards harmony in all your endeavors. Aw. Nice, right? That's lovely. This house is inclusive of the sum total of diversity while fostering an overall sense of community. Czar has made himself something of a spokesman for both Nova and vampirism in general, with emphasis on sanguine feeding. And then they have their own, like, separate website as well. So Nova is, like, kind of the, the branched organization for all of these individual vampire communities, I think. Okay. And then the various different houses have, like, their own thing going on, too. Um, the House of the Muses is headed by an individual named Lorelei, mm-hmm. and itself is the House of Many Talents. It's comprised of artists and musicians from all walks of life. I was going to say, it embraces and Yeah, it embraces and supports the creativity that springs from the trials of life transformed into beauty and power. Wow. I love this. So some of this is, like, super nice, right? Here's the thing. Like, this is something that actually I, I have encountered time and time again, honestly, with, like, groups of people that are... Uh, either like subject to like judgment or misconceptions or things like that. I would so much rather hang out with these people. Mm-hmm. These groups of like that, like their mission statements are like diversity and inclusiveness and like accepting yourself as you are and all of these kind of really beautiful things. I would so much rather spend time with these cool New Orleans vampires than like the kind of people who would write mean things about them on the internet. Yeah. And so every year on Easter, Christmas and Thanksgiving, the um, New Orleans Vampire Association holds big community events to um, feed those who are hungry and homeless. And they've done this every year since Hurricane Katrina. That's amazing. Yeah. You can donate to them on their website. I'm assuming the donation button is still active. Like I said, the website's kind of old. Yeah, here's the thing. The one downside I've learned so far to real vampires on this episode is that they're not great at building websites. They are not. They really are not. <laughs> like, not to stereotype an entire community, but they're not good at... <laughs> but you guys are bad at websites. <laughs> they're bad at websites. That's my takeaway. Yeah. Um, and then, actually, what the other thing that's cool is that this, the New Orleans Vampire Association, mm-hmm. on their news page, has a link to the study that John Edgar Browning did. That's so, so cool. So I think that's kind of cool. They're one of the communities that he spent a lot of time with while he was learning. And I think it's it's neat that, like, they clearly support this source enough to have it listed on, like, their resources and things. Um, which is why I felt comfortable mm-hmm. using it for this episode. That's amazing. And, and that's, I can... I can see why, because, like, obviously I can't speak to their experience with him, but he seems like he approaches it from, like, a very, like, thoughtful, respectful place. Yeah, seriously. Um, like, a place of sincere curiosity, rather than any sort of preconceived notions or judgments. Yeah, so that's pretty much real vampires. So cool, thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Do you have any questions? Because if not, there's a few things I just want to run through real quick that are kind of amusing, but I'd rather answer, like, specific yeah, questions run, if you have I want to hear the things in a second. I'm very curious about, because you didn't really spend much time, which is fair, uh, on the psychic psychic vampirism. Yeah. Do those communities, like, obviously they overlap, but, like, what is the process of feeding and, like, community and all of that like for psychic vampires? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. And near as I can find, 
Um, there is overlap, specifically to the point that most vampire communities I found and like was researching through and sort of lurking in are of the mindset that like whatever your self-definition of vampire is, you're welcome in that community. Okay. There's not really like a sanguinarians only kind of deal. Like it's Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's a vampire community, like, and you say, I'm a vampire, they're like, cool, come on. Like, there, there are too few of us as is, like, come hang out. Okay, for um, sure. So there's a lot of overlap between those groups because those groups sort of identify under the same umbrella no matter what. Mm-hmm. As far as the actual feeding process, from what I was able to find, there are people who either, one, like, intentionally and explicitly feed on specific kinds of energy while the person is there. There are also people that can, like, feed residually on energy left behind by people once they have vacated a place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I th- and to my understanding, that would be, like, places with, like, a lot of people in them. Like, once those places are empty, like, there's a lot of residual energy left over. Oh, cool. And then the other thing I found, and I'm actually, I'm glad you reminded me of this, because I wanted to touch on it, and I'm not really sure how I personally feel about it. Mm-hmm. Because it kind of gets into some weird territory in terms of, like, consent um, whereas, like, in the, the the blood drinking community, like, that's kind of an overt process, and so there has to be, like, a consensual aspect to it. Right. In psychic vampirism, like, that's a much grayer area. And one of the communities I was looking at had this big thing on, like, different types of psychic feeding, and one of them was apparently, like, via astral projection. And it was implying that some psychic vampires feed by inducing night terrors in other people through astral projection. Don't do that. And so this idea that, like, yeah, right? Like, don't do that. That's not cool. Guys. Um, yeah. Or, like, another one was um, basically that, like, psychic vampires can train themselves to astral project and, like, go into other people's dreams and create, like, scenarios of intense energy. So, like, night terrors would be one or, like, um, dreams of, like, a sexual nature would yeah. be another. And, like, that's kind of weird. Hmm. So I don't know. I couldn't really find a lot about, like, when that is a consensual process or if it really can be. I mean, like, uh, yeah. I'm not really sure. If you have, like, a partner or, like, someone you know and you're, like, heads up, I'm going to come <laughs> yeah, get right. sexy in your dreams later, then that's, like, cool and fine. Do that. That's great. Yeah. But, <laughs> and that person can be like, yeah, sure, I'll see you there. But. Right, yeah. The Night Terrors thing, like, I don't feel great about. I don't feel good about that. Please don't do that. Yeah. So that one's, like, that's a little bit more of a gray area. Yeah, that but, one's a big, um, that one's a bit of a can you don't for me. Yeah, and I'm not sure because I also, like, I imagine, short of a great deal of control and training, I don't know how many people can, like, actively control where and to whom they astral mm-hmm. project. I don't know how you intentionally feed as a psychic vampire is, I guess, what I'm saying. I get the whole part, like, theoretically, I get the whole part about, like, feeding on, like, energy that is just sort of ambient Mm -hmm. in the air and like doing it without necessarily intending to i don't really get so much the the sort of nuts and bolts of i can tell you right now that um psychic vampirism even more so than um like like uh sanguinarian vampirism has a lot of like unexpected slash maybe pretty much expected crossover with like like kink and bdsm communities anyway oh yeah high energy stuff all right yeah i love it so that's vampires vampires they're just like us and they're bad at websites (laughs) they're just like the rest of us they also (laughs) don't know how to brand no it's actually really really cool and i want to thank you for like walking us through all of that yeah it was a really fascinating anthropological study it was a cool deep dive if you are a member of the real vampire community and you're interested in sharing your experiences with us we would love to hear about them, yeah. or I would love to hear about them. I think it's fascinating. Happy to keep you anonymous. Like, you don't have to give us any information about yourself, but... Yeah, make a dummy account yeah. on one of those Google sites that your people... 
<laughs> or just like yeah. yeah make like a sock puppet account uh, and just yeah yeah Anyway, so you can email us at mm-hmm. cryptkeeppod at gmail.com, C-R-Y-P-T-K-E-E-P-P-O-D at gmail.com, whether you're a vampire or not, um, if you have another listener story. Actually, I was thinking, so next week will be yours, right? Mm-hmm. And then that means the weekend right before Halloween will be mine? Yes. I would love to do another listener story episode for Halloween. I would love to do one for Halloween. I think that would be perfect. um, Yeah, so for Halloween, we'll be doing a listener story episode. We have a ton in our inbox right now. If we haven't responded to you via our inbox, um, please don't fret. We've gotten it. We have a whole folder of them set aside. Mm -hmm. We will get to as many of those as possible. We have received it. Um, We may use it for a future episode if we don't use it this time around. But we have gotten them. If you still want to get one in, though, there is time. Um, We'll try to be going through all of those Probably not this week, but the week after, I'll go through mm-hmm. and start picking which ones I want to use. I can go through some as well. Or Yeah, excellent. And then on a similar note, dealing with our email inbox, if you are one of the artists who has sent me basically like a, an artist inquiry about doing merch designs for our Etsy shop once we reopen it, I think I've gotten back to everybody. If you are an artist who has sent me stuff and I have not responded to you, please shoot me another email or I'd prefer email at the Crypto Keeper account. Please don't do like mm-hmm. Twitter DMs. It's just easier to lose track of those. Especially because Twitter filters them out sometimes like without a good reason. Like they get filtered into this like other inbox. Anyway. Yeah, it does. And it's really confusing. Um, but Gmail, like I have a whole folder and like label set aside just for artist inquiries. And I think I've gotten back to everybody. I apologize if I haven't. Um, it's just an oversight on my part. It's not that I'm trying to ignore everybody. I've, I'm, I'm trying to respond to everyone. So if you are still interested in that, I haven't nailed down everything yet, so you can still send that back to me. I am going to be trying to finalize those designs and get started on new merch, though, like in the next two weeks. So try to make that not too long. Yeah. Any other announcements from you? Um, I, I don't I don't think I have any announcements. Cool. Yeah. I This was neat. I love October. It's Halloween time. I'm going to have to find something really good for next week. And yeah. Yeah. Tell me to brag, but I'm kind of a hard act to follow. Okay. <laughs> Calm down. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this journey today. Were you thanking me or the audience? I was thanking you specifically, but I can also thank them. Oh. Well, I'm just like, I mean, I'm always, I'm here every week. Yeah, I know. And I, I, I'm glad that you are. It's, it's nice to have, like, some things that are certain in this world. And I'm glad one of those things is vampires. Me too, honestly. So, as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there.